Hey, I want to talk to you today about seven steps toward adopting a church multiplication culture without breaking wineskins. Every church that's really effective is probably in a constant state of flux. Technology, politics, certainly pandemics alter the way that we do things. And so we're constantly working to adapt the way that we do church to bless our members and take care of them. But this results in kind of a congregation-centric approach to ministry rather than an outward-focused approach to ministry, which would be uh, making disciples who make disciples and multiplying churches that multiply churches. And so we really want to see the importance of this. And we're losing ground in America, and we're losing ground pretty fast. The pandemic has hurt a lot of churches. A lot of people just aren't coming back to church. We've got to think this thing through. There are unreached people groups all around us. And so this is a really crucial thing that we need to do. And, you know, those of us that have been studying together, uh, we're, we're looking at all these tools that we've put together. Now, how do we implement them? How do we uh, focus them on the needs of our congregation as we shift our congregation to an entirely different focus? Uh, one thing that we have to keep in mind is that large-scale change always results in some kind of upset. People, uh, Some people love change, but most people don't. And uh, you can lose your most valuable asset in the middle of any kind of weighty change that goes on in the life of the church. And it certainly would be when you're trying to shift the whole church culture. We've done church culture modification before, most of us. M most of us who went from just traditional church to the seeker-driven church or a megachurch mentality, or we hopped under the Hillsong model. We've done something like that. We've been over this road before, but there's been breakage, and we want to minimize the breakage. The breakage is people. It's our it's our best and our only real asset. But you know, every time you lose a member, and you really don't want to lose a member over something like a, a, a mistake you made during a time of change, uh, we're, we're losing. Our relationships, we're losing skills, we're losing friendships, we're losing money ultimately in the offering. And so we really want to think through how can we do this with with you know maximum success, minimal damage. And so here are the seven steps that I've put together. The first one is to define a church multiplication culture that's rooted in scripture. And for me, this always starts with the pulpit. This is where you get to talk to the most of people, the most, you know, all the time. And I would start, I, I'm looking at, you know, a, a, a complete switch in terms of culture as perhaps as much as five years, certainly 18 months. And so I'm thinking about teaching from the Bible. Uh, I would take them through the Gospels and I would focus on disciple making, Jesus as a model. Then I'd move into Acts. I'd focus on the early church as immature the later church in Acts as being mature. And, and then I would begin thinking about the multiplication that we see in Acts. I would think about people like the woman at the well. There certainly was a group of people left behind in John 4 after Jesus left town. That lady was a leader. And you got to deal with these kinds of issues and, and just bring them to the surface in terms of your congregation's thinking. I would end up in Ephesians. I'd talk a lot about Ephesians 2, that these people sitting there are God's masterpiece. There's something for them to do. Ephesians 4, I'd re-identify my role as an equipper rather than a blesser. And I, I just press the congregation to see things differently. I would be pointing to missed opportunities and current deficiencies as we are today as a church. And and then 
there's some questions I think that you really need to ask yourself. And I'm going to kind of point out questions with each one of these points. And the first one is, what do we need to change in order to achieve our goal? This is a question really for you have in the back of your mind, taking notes, whatever you're doing, uh, as, as you're presenting material to the congregation. But then as it starts to leak into your sermons, then you've got to answer the second question, and that is, why is this change required uh, for where Jesus wants to take us? The second point here is to build an elite group. I like to use the word elite as a noun. Create an elite. Create a, a group of people that other people are thinking, I want to be in that group. They're special. How you do this is you start looking for the people who complement your teaching as you're talking about multiplication. Um, you start trying to figure out uh, who's a mover and a shaker. You know, I've always kind of figured that uh, I just move with the movers. You know, I, I look for who responds positively and I get into a relationship with those people. If I can, I group them together. I begin to network them. I disciple them separately. And then I start to direct them toward microchurch planting. Now, this is probably the hardest part of this, directing people toward microchurch planting. How do you, um, how, you know, how do you get people from complacency, uh, wealthy, semi-wealthy, comfortable Americans doing their thing, living the good life, to thinking about that I'm a part of the Great Commission. In fact, I'm an integral part of the Great Commission. i got to go out there and do something, plant a church. This is what we're going to get to in the next module when we start talking about microchurch, but that's a talk for another day. So questions here are, who's giving the most positive feedback to my teaching? Who's most capable of planting a microchurch and doesn't think that they are right now? And then how can I stoke enthusiasm to overcome complacency? The third point here is to meet separately with each leadership strata. Now, um, I, I can think back to when we were raising money for a building, and I, I started the ball rolling by, I put $25 in a bank account, opened a bank account, put $25 in, calculated how long at the current rate of interest it would take to become a million dollars. And I stood up in church one Sunday, and I told everybody, someone donated a million dollars to our church this week for a building fund. So we've opened up a bank account, and we put the money into the bank account. And I paused, and I go, there's just one problem. The problem is that at the current rate of interest, that $25 is going to take, you know, 97 years or whatever to reach the million-dollar point. Uh, what I did was I kicked off... A, a mentality. It's what we really talked about here in the first point, where you begin to talk about a church multiplication uh, culture and what it is and why we need to do it. I was now able to talk about a, a church building that was way in our future, but why we needed to think about it now and why we need to start giving toward it now. By the way, that very Sunday, one man who was his first time in our church dumped $5,000 into the offering. That building fund jumped, jumped from twenty five. dollars uh, dollars to lower 5,000 because other people put money in there too. And so, but, but as we got into building and we got into raising money seriously for building, uh, we devised a plan where we could meet with people in groups and, and, you know, people who were, uh, core people. I met with them very privately over a dinner. And then we took the next strata of leaders and we, you know, as we kind of just rippled outward and, and we met with them in a larger group in the church auditorium. And then we, we put together a package, a little video package. We actually made a DVD in those days. And uh, we invited people into homes who are just regular members of the church. And then I was able to talk to them in small groups 
on DVD, the important thing is there was another leader who in another strata had been a little more close in and 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 face to face about this thing could answer questions for them because Q and A is hugely important at this point. You want to make sure that you're including young people because they really are your next generation of leaders. I can remember back when we were uh, putting together the, the the last building thing that we did in in the church that I was pastoring in Kaneohe, and uh, we invited a 16 year old kid that. You know, so many people are going, why do you invite him? Well, today he's the primary worship leader in that church. Uh, this is the place where you want to harvest ideas for systemic change. This is going to happen in your core group. It's going to happen in your next tier of leaders. It's going to work its all its way down to where you're meeting in homes and small groups and you have leaders there just answering questions. There are going to be discussions that come up that are going to feed back into you and guide you as to how you uh, move toward the last part of this, which is developing a timeline for orderly and systemic changes. Now, you need to ask some questions along the way. First, who's going to be most affected by this culture change, and what can I do to make it go down easy with them? Uh, who do I have to convert first to multiplication thinking? I'm not talking about the fanatics that got all excited about your sermon that we talked about in the last point. I'm talking about people who are key leaders who could be resistors or could be extremely positive if they jumped on the bandwagon. Um, and and then how can I use the multiplication challenge that Todd Wilson, Dave Ferguson, and others put together. It's available at exponential.org. You just go to Exponential website, and it's right there in front of you. How can I get a lot of people to take the multiplication challenge and begin to think aspirationally, if not practically, about uh, planting churches and making disciples who, who multiplied? And then the last part here, the last question that you got to ask yourself is, who was left out, who didn't get a chance to show up because of work or whatever, or who intentionally missed the meeting that we invited them to to explain this stuff in detail because you probably need to go and buy that person a cup of coffee and talk with them privately because it's important that you bring everybody on board. The fourth point here is to incorporate change into your systems and structures. And you need to spend a lot of time just comparing the current culture with the desired culture. And the changes will become apparent. You need to identify and then prioritize the necessary changes that will reshape your culture to get you where you want to go. And then you need to network change agents. Now, again, this is different than, you know, the, the little group of fanatics that are probably going to go out and start to do something here. You need to identify the people in the church who are potential change agents and, again, the people who are potential change resistors. And then you need to network people together in a way that's meaningful to them. And then there needs to be training. Uh, you need useful training materials. Uh, the videos, the, the PowerPoints, the stuff that I've put into this coaching module that we're doing in this platform, in this first module, uh, we're in the eighth session of this. And uh, the stuff that has gone before, the tools that you have invented before are the tools that you need to use to train your own people. I would suggest that if you're looking for just inspiring vision, how can we be a church that multiplies churches? Get your people to read Let Go of the Ring and have them read it in groups because it always inspires people to go out and do what you know happened to me in my life. 
And then the questions here that you need to ask is, where is support most required? Because this is where systems have to change to match people and their needs. What modifications are necessary as we go along? Because you're going to have already engendered some sort of a structure, but as you begin to implement, you got to start to think about what kind of modifications do I have to do to make this thing work? And again, um, who is going to be the most affected by this? I know I'm sounding a little bit redundant here, but you just don't want to lose people. Uh, sometimes you make a cultural shift and a job becomes redundant. Well, that person has to find a place where it's meaningful and they know that they belong in the life of your church and that they're contributing as much as they were contributing before. A fifth point is to identify a benchmark change. Uh, what I mean by this is something that once this happens, then we're going to know we're on the road. And so you're looking for something big and kind of low-hanging fruit, something that's easy to accomplish so that you can get up and brag about it and people get excited. After that, you want to start to set and accomplish a lot of short-term goals, especially up front. Uh, you just you want a lot of things that you can get up and talk about, a lot of people that you can brag about, make heroes of, because they're buying in and they're doing the thing that you wanted them to do. And you want the rest of the congregation to th start thinking about, hey, they got a lot of attention for this. I think I want to join in. And then uh, be sure that you are, are measuring the, pro the process of change. Uh, have, have guidelines and then have uh, benchmarks along the way, not the big benchmark. That's the kickoff one. But then the small benchmarks, the, the stuff that tell us we're actually going someplace and we're actually doing something. And then the last point here is persevere and, but, and expect some breakage along the way. And that means you persevere through the breakage. Here's some questions. Um, what three changes in priority order are going to produce the most significant long-term effects? I'm going to repeat that one. What three changes in priority order. You probably come up with seven or eight, but what are the big three are going to produce the most significant long-term effects? Now, here I am talking about doing little short-term goals that are going to give you some short-term wins. Uh, that's one thing. But, uh, but all, underneath all this, you need to be thinking about what are the big three changes that are going to produce the most 20-year effects, you know, that kind of thing. And, and then, you know, again, where the, is the low-hanging fruit? Uh, who represents a quick win and what can they do that represents a quick win? And then what are the costs that are associated with the opportunities? And ask yourself, am I willing to absorb these costs? Because there will be costs along the way. Sixth point is to communicate often and through multiple outlets. Utilize sermons, newsletters, social media. I know some one church that is doing a devotion. It's their whole leadership team doing it, so it's not too much of a load. But every day they get on Facebook, they do a five-minute devotional, and you can focus that thing on the change that you're trying to build into the life of the church, the scriptures that would fit with all that. Daily devotionals that maybe you write for people to go through the Bible and you know keep up with you, that sort of thing. Uh, reinforce whatever you do with a lot of hero making. A uh, very very urgent thing. Uh, in increase a sense of, of, of willingness and desire and even urgency by describing church statistics. I've I, I'm, I'm included in the cheat sheet that goes along with this lesson uh, three websites that are just excellent for gathering church data 
And basically, the church data is bad news, and that, of course, always increases urgency. Uh, church in America is losing ground, and we want to be a part of the solution to this problem, and here's what we can do, and uh, you know, feed these numbers and the statistics that you gather from there into your weekend messages, but also make this, the data available to your people so that they can talk about it and you know, give them access to the websites that I gave to you. Um, ask yourself this question. Can a theme of the year for the next five years be an important tool for us to help us move toward what we're trying to do? One theme could be disciple-making. Another theme could be um, finding your niche in the church. You know, the kind of stuff that we've done to build a volunteer network in our church, how do you shift that around to mobilizing missionaries out into the community? You know, what kind of a theme could you develop so you, you do something in, in, in a five-year succession that builds toward where you're really trying to go as a church. And then what data points, again, this comes back to the websites that I gave you in the cheat sheet, but what data points would most communicate urgency to your people? And finally, the seventh point here, the seventh step, is to prepare for the unforeseen because nobody can predict the future. No matter how well we plan, how well we prepare, something's going to pop up, something's going to change for the, for the good, and something's going to change for the not so good, and you got to be ready for it all. And so, again, you come back to creating tools and checkpoints for measuring change. So if some sort of a disaster occurs, you can always point back and say, yeah, but look where we've come. Look what we've done. Look what, we, you know, let's just stick it out here. Um, you need to continually assess and address the cultural landscape. And I'm talking about the cultural landscape, not in the church culture. You're trying to move from being congregation-centric to outward-focused. I'm talking about the larger culture around. You know, what technology is there? Uh, what disasters have happened in our community? And we can respond as a church, which gets us thinking a little bit more outwardly. You know, what threats are, are coming against the church? We did SWOT analysis. And we talked about strengths and weaknesses and threats and opportunities and, and, and how strengths and weaknesses are, are congregation-centric. <clears throat> and threats and opportunities are basically things that come from the outside. And so these things are, I think, really, really crucial to you. Um, you want to meet again, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of beating a dead horse here, but I think it's worth talking about. You want to meet privately with any individual who may resist you or may lose something because of the cultural adaptations that are going on. Uh, very, very, very important that you cultivate relationships that could be damaged in the in the midst of this because we just want to minimize breakage and maximize opportunity here. Questions again for you to ask yourself. Uh, do I feel that we've created a safe environment for change to a church multiplication culture? This is you. This is the leader. This is the pastor. The buck stops here. Have you created a safe environment for change? Because that's crucial to somebody, and it, you may not even you'd be surprised at the people who are going to be threatened. It's not going to be the people you thought were going to be threatened, um, mostly. But uh, you know, ask yourself: Is this safe for the people that are going to be affected by it? And then ask yourself, lastly, and this is a big one, and it sounds kind of crass when I bring it up, but are we financially prepared for any, any unseen hiccups? Are, 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 you know, what if a big donor leaves because they get mad because they don't like what we're doing? Can we absorb that? What if the opportunities begin to explode in front of us? 
Do we have the money to support these things? And so, again, just seven steps toward adopting a church multiplication culture. If you'll take what I've said, you take the cheat sheet, you take the other tools that we've put together with the tools that we've gone through in this module, I think that you're going to be on the way to some really wonderful things happening.